Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Morning, Chris. Good to talk. Um, happy St. Patrick's Day. It's been an absolutely um, colossal day in the world of economics and finance with the banking crises ongoing all over the place. So I think that's going to warrant a lot of discussion this morning. We had an ECB interest rate decision on Thursday. Uh, we've had a fair bit of data out of Ireland. We've had house price data, inflation data and export data. So I'd just like to give a rundown on that to see what the key themes are. And we also had um, Jeremy Hunt's UK spring budget during the week. So you might want to talk about some of the detail of that. Perhaps I'll just start with a quick run through what's been happening on the Irish data front. House price data continue to show a deceleration in house price inflation. I know the annual rate is not the best rate to look at, but... The national house prices in the year to January increased by 6.1%, still rising year-on-year basis, but the rate of increase is falling dramatically. Dublin down at 4.3% and outside of Dublin, 7.4%. I think the most interesting aspect of the data is what's going on in Dublin. We spoke about it the last time. It continued in January. Basically, between September and January, Dublin average house prices, well, I should say um, residential property because it's houses and apartments, declined by 1.7%. So the Dublin market very definitely losing steam in terms of price movement. We, we got the first piece of monthly export data for January showing a decline of 3.8%. And it's not terribly often 
that we've been able to talk about year-on-year decline in Irish merchandise exports for quite some time. Basically, what's going on there, exports to Great Britain down by 5%, the states down by 24.1%, and growth of 9.1% to the European Union. Uh, The key factor driving that is a significant decline in the exports of chemical and pharmaceutical, which accounts for 65% of the total. There's something going on in terms of sales to the United States that was down by 27.1%. So it is one month's data. There was dramatic growth during 2022 in chemical and pharmaceutical. Uh, but for some reason, there was a decline, a sharp decline in January. It may be just a technical factor. It's probably not representative of anything significant changing, but it's one that I think we will come back to that needs careful monitoring because it is an incredibly important part of the Irish export base. We got Irish inflation data, which uh, not surprisingly was a little bit disappointing. Month on month increase of 1.6%, giving a year on year increase of 8.5%. That's up from 7.8% in January. And the the key factors driving that increase, clothing and footwear prices up strongly. That's because the January sales end in February. So you always get a month on month increase. Food price inflation continues to be a thing up by 1.2% in the month. And average food prices in in February running 13.3% ahead of last year. And private rents continue to grow strongly. So, and and of course, the other component that is really significant is, and this will have been exacerbated by what the European Central Bank did yesterday, the mortgage interest rate component up 4.3% on the month and on a year-on-year basis, an increase of 31.6% in average mortgage interest costs. So a mixed bag of data there, but just to summarize, Uh, The housing market continues to lose momentum. No surprises there, given what's happening on the interest rate front. Uh, The export performance, somewhat disappointing, but it's one month's data and certainly is not consistent with what we saw during 2022. But that's something that um, I certainly will be watching closely over the coming months. And the inflation pressures continue to build in the economy. Anyway, Chris, that's probably enough. Can I just talk to you about the housing point, which, of course, is always interesting. And we've had some disagreement, uh, or at least we've we've had a nuanced discussion about what causes house prices to go up in the way that they have recently. And I've often cited a Bank of England piece of research which said that in the UK at least, and probably elsewhere, given that these things are global in nature, The rise in UK house prices really since the mid-1980s to the present day is almost entirely caused by interest rates falling. And I think you quite rightly took issue with that, saying that other factors must be important. And that own research said, yes, other factors do influence house prices, but they tend to be very short run in nature. And the long run rise in UK house prices has been caused by low interest rates. And that offends intuition, I think, that you know there are lots of other factors that affect housing supply, housing demand, and where those two curves intersect is where house prices settle. And I would be pleased to know, I think, I've come across some research that takes issue with that Bank of England paper and says that it gets it wrong uh, for all sorts of technical reasons. 
essentially to do with efficient markets and the way in which they set the problem up, the question up and the way they investigated. Anyway, I was convinced by this new piece of research, which apart from taking issue with the Bank of England research was very interesting because it surveyed the entire literature, which is massive, as you can probably imagine, around the world of what the heck determines house prices. And you won't be surprised to learn is that the answer was it all depends. And it's really important to note that this research, which I found compelling, said that different things influence house prices at different times in different ways. And it's never the same thing twice. It varies across geographies at any particular point in time in a particular place. It might well be housing supply is doing all of the work, doing all of the driving of house prices wherever they they might be going. And in another part of the world, it might be interest rate costs. And in different at different times, different things. So it, it's a complete mess. There's no one thing that always and everywhere tells you that this is the cause of high house prices and that you have to have, in the words of this research, a holistic approach, which I think was probably more in accord with your intuition when we were discussing this before. And that, yes, all of those other factors like housing supply, all of the factors that affect housing demand, you know, the, the, the great housing thing that took off in the second half of the 20th century was a post-Second World War thing. Before then, everybody rented in the UK and in Ireland. The research tells you that there's no such thing as normal in the housing market. There are just different eras, different stages of, of, of patterns of ownership of what people did. As I say, that sometimes we, we always rented rather than bought. The great housing boom of the post-war years, particularly in the UK, and I suspect in Ireland, was, was driven by public sector supply. Now it's the private sector. So it, the conclusion I reached is that it's very, very complicated. I row back from my earlier remarks that it's all interest rates. The piece acknowledged that interest rates are incredibly important. And it's not just about interest rates. It's about credit, credit conditions generally. So it's not just the price of the money that you can borrow, the interest rate, the mortgage rate. It's the amount that you can borrow. It's credit availability is, is, is also incredibly important. So it's a phenomenally complicated story. It's no wonder that people like you and me, when we study it, we get confused because it's a story that changes through time. So if we ask the question, what's driving house prices today? It could be a completely different set of answers to the one that we would have arrived at 10 years ago or in five years time. So again, beware politicians who say, we know what the answer is to high house prices and we know what to do to solve it. It's really, really complicated. Enough said. Let's move on, Jim. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, just to, um, I guess, reflect on that for a second, Chris, um, it, it is an incredibly complicated issue. And the thing that we do need to be very wary of are people and politicians who stand up promising a silver bullet solution. It is so complicated, it is so dynamic, there is no silver bullet solution. Uh, but I would say the one thing that certainly goes without saying is that we just continue to, we need to continue to ramp up supply in the market. Moving on to banking, Chris, it's been an absolutely phenomenal week. Our last podcast, we were really focusing in on Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, two that had been shut down by the FDIC. Um, we've seen a number of major U.S. banks come together to put to place deposits with First Republic Bank, which is based in San Francisco, but has operations in many parts of the United States. So that was sort of to shore up that those that bank. And also, I guess, 
the big banks are obviously clearly very worried about the contagion that is starting to build and hence they're trying to bring stability to the banks that are in the firing line at the moment um, and then we had the whole Credit Suisse first Boston debacle ongoing in Europe during the week, which we can talk about the detail. But Chris, before I hand over to you to get your perspective, um, I came across an interesting statistic this morning. In the last week, US banks have borrowed a combined $164.8 billion from two Federal Reserve backstop facilities. Okay, this is basically, and just to put that in context, the previous week, 4.58 billion was borrowed. So we've gone from 4.58 to 164.8 in a week. And the final bit of context that I think is cause for great concern is that the prior weekly high was 111 billion back in the height of the banking crisis, the global financial crisis back in 2008. So there's an ongoing story evolving here. Very definitely, you know, there is contagion starting to build through the system. You'd have to say the prime cause of all of this is the aggressive interest rate tightening that has happened over the last 12 months and which continues in Europe because bank assets have fallen dramatically in value on the balance sheet. And that's not a problem if it's if it remains on the balance sheet. But when these assets are valued at a mark-to-market basis, in other words, their current valuation, you suddenly see there is a bit of a solvency crisis in many banks. And when the liquidity side of the balance sheet starts to be affected, as was highlighted very clearly with the SVB bank situation at the end of last week, um, you have a serious, serious problem. Yeah, I think for very obvious reasons, lots of people uh, have been asking me this week offline about all of this. I'm struck by how non-intuitive people find banking. You mentioned the words balance sheet and talk about bank assets and bank liabilities. And I can see people's eyes glazing over already. And something as simple as bank liabilities, talk, you just you just use those words, bank liabilities, and people look at you and they go, what are they? And th- these are very smart, you know, normal, intelligent people, and they find the jargon very difficult. And cutting through, trying to explain what's going on is something I've been doing all week. And it starts with that, that phrase, bank liabilities. When you deposit money in a bank, that becomes a liability for the bank. And it's funny how people seem to find even that relatively straightforward concept difficult to get their heads around. And the way I've been describing it is to say, well, let's imagine, Jim Power, you are a bank and you've got a mortgage. The way in which you as a bank are working is that you have accepted a bank depositing money with you. So you've become a bank in the sense that the bank has lent you money for your mortgage. And so Jim Power Bank then has this liability, which is your mortgage, because you owe it back to the bank. And it's as if the bank has deposited money with you. You then go and create an asset with this liability to match it. You go and buy a house and the the house has a value. So you are a bank, Jim Power Bank. Your liability is the money you owe the bank and your asset is your house. And if the value of your house is in excess of the money that you owe the bank, you are solvent. And if you are in negative equity, which an awful lot of people were back in the day, sadly, some still are, but thankfully fewer, you are verging on insolvency. 
your assets are worth less than your liabilities. Now, for you as Jim Power Bank, in this very simple example that I'm describing, which is what banks do in, you know, writ large all the time, your solvency problem isn't an issue because the bank that you owe money to, this is your liability, doesn't mark your asset to market. You mentioned that phrase. It only is concerned the terms of your loan, the terms of your liability to the bank depend entirely on you just paying your mortgage every month. The bank doesn't care what your house is worth. The bank doesn't care that you're insolvent, provided you have the necessary liquidity to service your loan. Now, what happened with SVB was very, very similar. It had an awful lot of liabilities. People had deposited money with it, and it had an awful lot of matching assets. And those assets, as you say, went down in price. Now, that wouldn't have mattered. Nobody would have cared if people hadn't started pulling those deposits. And therefore, they had a real problem because unlike you, where the bank didn't pull its deposit with you, didn't ask for its mortgage money back, people did ask SVB for its money back. And that was the problem. Credit Suisse's issues are multiple and different. Um, they have been losing uh, deposits. They've been losing customers on their wealth. They're a huge wealth manager and their, their wealth management arm has been struggling. They have a big investment bank that does all sorts of strange things that over the years has been involved in all sorts of scandals. There's something called the Green Silk scandal here that sucked in David Cameron, the ex-prime minister. There was the Archegos scandal that involved the bank losing huge amounts of money. So wherever there has been a financial scandal in recent years, quite often, not always, but quite often, Credit Suisse's fingerprints have been associated with it. Uh, Swiss banking has got some history here. Um, I'm old enough to remember when there were three big Swiss banks. There's only really two now, Credit Suisse and UBS. Back in the day, there was a third called SBC, Swiss Banking Corporation. And the Swiss back then uh, had to organize SBC taking over a really struggling UBS, Schweizerische Bank Gesellschaft, Union Bank of Switzerland. The way in which they did it was quite curious. It was that UBS was in trouble. SBC was a strong bank. They put the two together to try and rescue UBS. And the new entity kept the old, failing, troubled name. And there were lots of rumors around this week that they're going to have to do the same again, that two banks are going to become one. So there's still, I think, an awful lot of water to flow under this particular bridge. As you say, a lot of the problems have been caused by this rapid rise in interest rates that we've seen pretty much everywhere, certainly on both sides of the Atlantic. There is, of course, a second reason, and that's the actual behavior of the banks themselves. During the period of low interest rates, we're finding out the ones that uh, did too many silly things. And each bank failure, if you like, bank problem, let's not use the word failure too much, each bank problem is going to be slightly different in terms of what their own behavior was, but the behaviors were prompted in large part by low interest rates. And a lot of people are saying, we're gonna look back on those zero negative interest rates with an awful lot of regret. The, the, the standard textbook economics definition, I've seen it being used this week for how to deal with this problem is that you've got two targets and two instruments. The targets of the central bank are price stability and financial stability. And the instruments that it has got to, to deal with these two targets are interest rates for inflation and regulation for financial stability. And that the right thing to do for central banks is to continue with the interest rate targeting of inflation 
and to use new regulations to deal with the financial stability problem. I think that's great in theory. I think it is absolute bollocks in practice, quite frankly, because I think that when you've got the two arms of monetary and regulatory policy working almost in opposition to each other, you create a problem with interest rates and you solve it with regulation. I think that could lead to disaster. It's a great textbook theory, but won't work in practice. So I thought yesterday when the Central, European Central Bank put its interest rates up by half a percent, they were wrong to do so. The markets have disagreed with me, equity markets in particular, but also bond and interest rate markets have essentially ignored that 50 basis point rise and have gone up subsequently. As we speak, European equity markets are up again this morning. I don't think that's going to last. I really don't. I, I, obviously, I don't know. That's verging on a forecast and all the caveats that come with that. But I do think that, that we will come to look back on the European interest rate decision as a mistake. As I say, the markets disagree with me and I always respect what markets are saying. So I go back and try and figure out where my logic is going wrong. But I must say, Jim, I'm sitting here very, very nervous. I don't know about Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. You. As the story has unfolded during the week, you know, it's naively if somebody had somebody did ask me actually a couple of months back at a presentation I was doing, uh, what was the potential for another banking crisis? And my answer was that actually I think it's quite low because um you know, it would appear certainly in Europe, not so sure about the United States that the whole regulatory environment has improved dramatically since the crash in 2008-2009. Um, but the one thing that, and we've spoken about it actually a lot, it's the unforeseen consequences of the sort of monetary tightening that we've experienced in the last 12 months. When you see interest rates going up like that, it is bound to create problems. It is bound to expose weaknesses in financial institutions and that's exactly what's happening because okay you use i say in my introduction earlier that the problems we're seeing is 
due to rising interest rates. And you say there's a second factor, which I agree with, which is regulatory failure. But that regulatory failure would not have been exposed if interest rates hadn't been rising. So it's, 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 it's a little bit like housing. There's a myriad of different factors at play here. Rising interest rates, you know, has really, really crystallized the problem for banks over the last couple of months because the, the bank bonds they've been holding on their balance sheets um, have fallen sharply in value. So that does create a problem for banks if they have problems on the the deposit or funding side of their balance sheet, which is exactly what has happened a number of banks, particularly in the United States. Um, the, the response um, is interesting. Uh, we spoke in the podcast earlier in the week about the backstop that the US Treasury and the Federal Reserve have put in place to provide funding and liquidity to the US banking system. We've seen the decision overnight from a number of big banks to place a significant amount of money on deposit with um, First Republic Bank. And we've seen a big $50 billion loan put in place from the Swiss um, Central Bank for CSFB. Uh, but yet the customers of CSFB don't appear to believe it. Um, I think we continue to see a lot of business moving away from CSFB. And I find it difficult to see how CSFB could act, can actually survive this as a single entity. So I would agree with you. I think we are moving closer to some sort of um, merger with another bank. But going back to what the European Central Bank did yesterday, I just think it's barmy um, continuing to increase interest rates aggressively, given the sort of financial instability we have in the system at the moment. I think that if the European Central Bank had paused yesterday, I think people would have believed that, you know, we are in a bit of a crisis now, global crisis, there's no doubt about it. So pausing does make sense. But um, the zealots in the European Central Bank delivered a half percent. Um, the one thing that did change in terms of what the ECB was saying yesterday is that they've stopped giving us foreign guidance. I mean, we spoke after the last meeting about the stupidity of the European Central Bank and subsequently a number of ECB officials, including Philip Lane, coming out saying, actually, we're going to increase rates by a half percent in March. So perhaps the European Central Bank had no choice yesterday other than to increase rates because it had backed itself into a corner. But that forward guidance is now gone. And basically, the ECB concluded after yesterday's meeting that it will now be back to month by month data watching to see what further interest rate increases will be seen. But I think the really interesting test of this theory will come next Wednesday when the US Federal Reserve has its Federal Open Market Committee meeting where interest rate decisions will be decided. Up to a week ago, it was nailed on pretty much in the markets that the Fed would deliver an increase of a half percent. So that would take rates from 4.75 to five and a quarter. That view has changed over the last week. And I think there's probably a bit of a consensus now that the Federal Reserve will do nothing next week. It remains to be seen. Um, I think, you know, it, it seems clear to me that with the exception of CSFB, and I'd be interested in your perspective on this, but with the exception of CSFB, European banking in the main does appear to be in a somewhat better place than its US equivalent. And one of the reasons for the US equivalent being such difficulty is something we discussed in our prior podcast 
about the changes that were made to bank regulation back in 2018 um, following lobbying to which the Trump administration exceeded and, and changed the regulatory environment significantly. Um, so U.S. banking system does appear to be significantly more vulnerable at the moment. And that's why I think the Federal Reserve will have to take the view next week that interest rates should be put on hold for the foreseeable future until we can restore some semblance of stability to banking markets. But reflecting your last comment there, Chris, um, I would be extremely nervous at the moment about the global banking situation. And when I see, as I have done over the last few days, on Irish television, for example, um, sage individuals coming on saying, listen, don't worry, the Irish banking system is fine. The European banking system is fine. Um, that does concern me. Yeah, and I think we need to keep everything in context and, and not whip ourselves up into a, a friend, an unnecessary frenzy here. Um, it's definitely the case that the European banking system is in better shape, completely better shape than it was when it went into the last financial crisis. A lot of the problems, as we've discussed, do emanate in the States and the failures of bank regulators there. I've noted stories this week that European regulators are incandescently angry with their American counterparts. It's not that they want to interfere with American regulation. It's not that they want to, you know, that they particularly care about the state of American banks. It's the word contagion that they worry about because previously uh, liquid, previously very solvent banks, which is most of the European banking industry, not all, but most of it, could very quickly run into liquidity problems if contagion happens. If there is this rush for liquidity, people taking their money out, people moving their money out of banks into safer investments, short-term government bonds, that sort of thing. If that sort of thing started, modern day runs on banks, very, very good banks can get into trouble very, very quickly because of the structure of their balance sheets. As, as Martin Wolf of the FT wrote this week, it's still the case that we have a banking system that is designed to fail in certain circumstances. And banking is, is, is run on confidence. Everybody needs to keep their money in the banks. If everybody asks for their money bank back, then previously very sound banks can get into trouble very, very quickly. And if confidence evaporates, which essentially at the end of the day is what contagion is all about, then we, then we can get problems. The central banks are there to deal with those confidence problems and to restore confidence. And they do have the tools necessary to do that. But I think that they don't include damaging confidence by putting interest rates up inappropriately. That's my perspective. But as I say, the markets currently disagree with me. The markets are telling me not to be nervous. They're telling us not to be nervous. I'm not taking an awful lot of comfort from what equity markets are doing at the moment because I know that they can turn, turn on a sixpence. Jim, while we've got some time left, I just wanted I just wanted to mention the UK budget. Yeah, Chris, and before you get into that, can I just uh, I read a piece from the Resolution Foundation in the UK yesterday, a progressive think tank, um, basically warning um, about household living standards in the UK dropping dramatically over the next five or six years. Um, and, and this comment came as part of their post-budget analysis. So I think that sort of sets the scene, I hope, for what you're about to tell me. It was an outrageous budget, in my opinion. I have to say again that the general consensus is not with me on that one. Several people do agree with me, but the general consensus is that it was sound, it was dull, it wasn't terribly interesting, and that it signified a steady hand on the tiller. 
which is the impression that Sunak and Hunt have been trying to create ever since the chaos of the last few years of the Johnson and then the Truss administrations, and that we should all be grateful for this steady, boring hand on the tiller. No, absolutely not. What we need, and this is ironic in a way, because I'm echoing things that Liz Truss said, we do need radical policies in the UK in order to start making some kind of an attempt to solve the very deep structural problems that we face. And the budget this week didn't go anywhere near that. It was just same old, same old from this Conservative government. And um, I think a comment from Professor Simon Wren-Lewis of Oxford University this morning puts it very, very well in that he said, the government's strategic vision remains to squeeze public service, public services and investment and hope giving money to a few individuals and temporarily to firms spurs a strong recovery. If at first you fail, try, try again, <laughs> question mark. Now, that summarised the budget very, very well in that they are squeezing public. There's no new money for public services in any meaningful way. They are going to be squeezed further, both in terms of their current and capital spending. It was hilarious in a sad traffic accident kind of way to see Jeremy Hunt being interviewed by the BBC this week in which it was pointed out to him that the UK economy was the only one still smaller than the pre-pandemic out of the G7 economies. It's the small, it still hasn't reached its pre-pandemic level of GDP. The other six economies in the G7 have. And he retorted by saying, oh, that's a private public sector thing. And the interviewer said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, the reason why that is, is the public sector hasn't grown at all. Indeed, it shrunk. And that's why the overall economy has shrunk. And the interviewer, of course, didn't make the obvious point of saying, well, the public sector is precisely the one bit of output of the UK economy, very big output sector of the UK economy that you control, Mr. Hunt. And you're the one that's squeezing it, which is Simon Mendoza's point this morning. The money given to a few rich individuals, the money that the budget gave to millionaires, actually, was outrageous. And this is in the air, another area where people's eyes glaze over and they would rather saw their leg off with a blunt penknife and talk about pensions. And it's all to do the way the taxation rules surrounding people's pension pots. And basically, you have in Ireland a 2 million euro cap on your pension pot that you, Jim Power, and anybody else in Ireland can build up. In the UK, it's just over a million quid. That cap was taken off, it was abolished. And the reason why that cap existed in the first place, I remember very well Treasury officials years ago telling me why they wanted to cap pensions and the reason is very very simple they said we don't want millions we don't want millionaires create able to create these huge pots of capital that they're then able to pass on to their heirs the the rationale for pension saving is that you save enough money to fund your retirement and then you die the state is not in the business of giving you tax incentives to create great inheritance trust funds for your children which is what uncapped pensions do. So it's very costly. They claim it'll save, it'll get people back into work, particularly senior doctors in the NHS. There were much better ways of doing this, much cheaper ways of doing this, so that they couldn't resist their natural instincts to give their mates, to give their rich friends more money. It's just outrageous. There was some stuff to do with investment, capital investment with the private sector to allow firms to, to what's called expense capital investment 100% year by year. It's temporary with an aspiration to make it permanent. But you know, what the heck, Britain's problem is far too low investment, both public and private sector. 
And I think this will give a short-term boost a little bit, not much. The OBR, the official budget watchdog, thinks it will give a little boost, but it won't do anything to trend investment. Uh, it's not going to do anything. It might do something in the very short term, but any boost to the economy is, is going to going to be short-lived. We needed much more, much more. And I've both written and talked about the sorts of measures that are needed. We've known about them for years. Nobody ever does them in the UK. There's, there's just an institutional block um, to trying to do the right thing by the UK economy. So I was very disappointed, Jim. And, and Chris, how did you interpret the decision? To, well, he told us he was going to, to push ahead with the increase in corporation tax in April. Um, I, I guess from an Irish perspective, there was a fear here during Brexit that um, there would be a significant move to compete aggressively with corporation tax um, once the UK left the European Union. Um, but actually, that's not happening and corporation tax is going up. Um, do you think that's a sensible strategy given the sort of lack of investment, the lack of growth we see in the UK economy at the moment, which is really the fundamental problem. Well, it is a bit rum to be saying to the private sector, here's some extra ways of expensing your investment in the short term to try and boost it and then say, and the profits from those investments, we're going to tax at a higher rate. So the two things clearly work in opposition to each other. There's there's a question mark about how just how much corporation tax matters for domestic investment and estimates vary so it it is a bit it is a bit odd it doesn't look like joined up thinking to me but at the at the margin i don't think it's a big deal but at the margin of course it's it's a good news story for ireland yes i think it is actually so chris i think um we leave it there uh, great to talk again um i'm heading off now to put a few euro on a few horses in cheltenham uh, the last day today try and enjoy some St. Patrick's Day festivities. So uh, great to talk. And the Grand Slam match tomorrow. Indeed. And I'm sure, Chris, the next time we talk, uh, there will be further evolution of this banking story, unfortunately. And I hope, sincerely hope it's better news. Uh, I just worry that it's not going to be. Cheers, Jim. (laughs) Cheers, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated.